Hello, and welcome to this episode of Ask a Physical Therapist. I'm your host, Dr. Tannis Kitchener. Today, I'm delighted to invite Dr. Dustin Anderson, who is a sport and spine specialist, also known as a physiatrist here in the Valley under the Studman. Uh, is it just Studman now? What are, what are, the Studman Clinic. It's the like Studman the Ohio Clinic. State. All right. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for that clarification. Um, so if you have not had the pleasure to meet Dr. Anderson, he is just super social, fun to chat with, and really, really great at what he does. I've referred a ton of folks to you because uh, you're one of the docs that I can send them to who really listens um, and who really gets down to like what is going on, like some really challenging cases. And you take a deep dive with them. They feel like they're in really good hands. They always come back to me like, yeah, this guy's getting it. So thank well, you. That's very generous. I appreciate no, it's, that. <laughs> it's true. Um, I also, it's also an easy sell when I say he's an orthopedic specialist, but he doesn't do surgery. <laughs> they're like, yeah, that sounds like my guy. <laughs> so sometimes, uh, not against surgeons, sometimes people need surgery. And I know who to send them to for that too. But um I'm really excited to bring to the Valley listeners and beyond some information about some regenerative medicine that you're doing. Absolutely. Um, So always we're chatting in the clinic about PRP versus stem cells versus sometimes even a cortisone injection, which I understand is not regenerative medicine, but it's an intervention option. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. So Philosophically, in our practice, we're always looking to heal tissue naturally. Um, And so I look at physical therapy as the other wing to the bird. Uh, You need two wings to soar, and if you only have one flapping, you kind of go in circles. So what tools are at our disposal um, to help people heal? Um, And the body has a capacity for for healing. Uh, Like you said, surgery is sometimes indicated. Um, So... In, in our armamentarium, if you want to call it that, uh, first you need a diagnosis. So you really have to listen to people. You have to be compassionate um, because most of the diagnoses are derived from the history and physical exam 70% of the time. Once you have that, then you can start diving into, is this appropriate to try a steroid shot? Just calm down inflammation, get back into therapy, strengthen your, for instance, knee arthritis. Calm down the pain with a steroid shot, uh, strengthen your quad. Um, get good activation of your kinetic chain and move on with your life and have a great ski season. But sometimes it's a little more complex than that. So we do reach for other tools in our toolbox. Um, You know, platelet-rich plasma or PRP uh, is one tool in our toolbox. Uh, To boil that down, you take your own blood and you centrifuge it or spin it down, get what's called the platelet layer, and... uh, It's based on the philosophy that uh, when you have an injury, there's increased blood flow to that area. Um, What's in the blood? Well, there's growth factors. They used to think it was on the red blood cells. It's actually on the platelets. And so this was happening uh, at the end of the last century, but people started investigating what those growth factors were. And we really um, dialed down the science to finding specific diagnoses and uh, applying specific types of PRP for those diagnoses. Stem cell is a little bit of a catch-all term. Um, it's an interesting, uh, interesting way to market certain things. Um, but a stem cell is really something that can differentiate into any other cell. So, again, we try to dial it down a little bit more uh, and either use uh, BMAC, which is bone marrow aspirate, or uh, adipose-derived uh, mesenchymal stem cells. Um, 
we use a lot of BMAC because there's more evidence for it, and we'll get into that in a second. I think evidence drives everything we do. Um, but again, there's certain indications. Knee arthritis is very, fairly well studied uh, in terms of BMAC. So that's something we might reach for if, you know, you're holding out on a total knee replacement. You want to get a couple extra ski seasons. Or a young patient who had a traumatic injury to the knee, they might not be a great candidate to put hardware in. So that's kind of the general overview. But for me, everything is derived from the evidence. So when you do a BMAC injection, it's usually self-donor, right? So it's that patient, you're taking blood marrow aspirate from them. Is it always the iliac bone and the pelvis? It's, it's almost always the iliac crest. Okay. Um, and we know we can safely do it. Uh, a lot of bone marrow biopsies are actually from the oncologic research. Um, so they've kind of developed ways to avoid nerves, blood vessels, avoid complications. And you tend to get a, a fairly good yield um, for cells that have the potential to heal tissue. We tend to think bone marrow-derived uh, mesenchymal stem cells are more effective um, for arthritis. There's not data to support they're any better or worse than adipose-derived. So that is a line of research that uh, we're working on. Uh, that would be at the Stedman Philippon Research Institute. Um, but I have that conversation with patients. Uh, where's the data? Where's the evidence? And uh, kind of follow that. Because if you're doing the fat tissue derived, then you don't have to put a needle into the bone. Exactly. So there's, there's lower adverse stuff going on there. Exactly. A lot of, a lot of time during my day, I kind of think of myself as just a consultant. What are the risks and benefits or advantages and disadvantages of a certain approach? You have to be honest with people, you know, uh, if you do an adipose derived technique, you know, there's a potential that by taking, uh, that fat tissue out, they're left with a deformity. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're a bikini model, <laughs> mm-hmm. that may be something that's highly relevant to you. If you're someone like me <laughs> or a normal person, you probably won't care. Uh, it's less painful. Uh, you get a good yield. Uh, something like uh, bone marrow or BMAC, um, it can be painful. Your iliac crest can be painful for a week or two after. So, again, it's really informing people and giving them the understanding of the reality of any procedure you do whether it's a flu shot or... <laughs> yeah, that informed uh, consent, else. right? Yeah. So if you, you you draw some of the bone marrow out, and then what do you do with it? We centrifuge it and we process it. Um, we put a little anticoagulant because if uh, it clots, then um, it's no longer usable. Um, and then we use image-guided techniques uh, to deliver the treatment. Um Image guidance is a big thing for me. Uh, There's good data, even in shoulder injections and knee injections, um, that they took experienced orthopedic surgeons, 25, 30 years of experience. They injected a shoulder, injected a knee, and uh, these were dye injectates on cadaver specimens, and they missed 30% of the time. So it really doesn't boil down to how experienced you are. Is, Is it image guided, and do you know you're in the right target? So I, my goal in practice is to do 100% image-guided, anatomic, ultrasound, or low-dose x-ray. And we've had a lot of success with ultrasound. The technology is so incredible. It's not just for looking at your babies anymore. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you can use it for shoulder, knee, ankle. Uh, there's some spine injections that are done under ultrasound. So it's really neat um, application of the technology. And there's no radiation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's harmless. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's a really neat tool to employ in practice. 
You mean you don't like just going blind? That's, <laughs> is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. That, to sum it up, we don't go in blind. You, you don't go in blind. <laughs> it's not a it's not a joint roulette on where where the injection goes. <laughs> so you're getting what you're paid for. Exactly. Right, exactly. Um, so I think that do you, would you? So if you get a BMAC, what would you say the recovery should look like for that? Great question. Uh, the the data would support probably four to six weeks for that tissue healing response to take effect. Um, for BMAC, let's say for knee osteoarthritis, you know, I would expect their iliac crest to be more sore for a week or two <laughs> yeah. than the actual injection itself. Uh, PRP, we have a, a few more restrictions. Um, so, you know, we there's high-level data for tennis elbow, lateral epicondylitis. There's high-level data for knee osteoarthritis. We kind of extrapolate that um, for greater trochanter pain syndrome, greater trochanteric pain syndrome, or bursitis is the common terminology. Um, but uh, I, I like to restrict people because you need time for that tissue to heal. If it's a meniscal tear, we really want to limit weight bearing. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's a tendinopathy, you know, you can just choose not to play tennis for a couple of weeks. Um, and it gets a little harder when it's a knee and you really want to ski or hike. But um, just try to, again, give people a realistic uh, expectation of the timeline and what they're going to experience. Mm-hmm. So is there an easy, quick, like, if you have this, you might consider talking to your provider about PRP or BMAC um, versus other interventions? That's a fantastic question, and uh, I'm going to answer it in a multi-part way. Please. <laughs> So I would only say that if the evidence for regenerative medicine is stronger than the traditional techniques, Mm. right? There's a comparator study where we have our routine PT, steroid, you know, (laughs) amalgamation. Yeah. Uh, And that really boils down to what we call level one evidence. So what's level five? Level five is expert opinion. Someone just telling you, I do this for a living, this works. You know, that's not really good evidence. A level one study is when you have... 10,000 people, you split them into groups. The researchers don't know what the patients are getting. The patients don't know what they're getting. Sorry, the doctors don't know what to get. The researchers do know. The doctors don't know what the patients are getting. The patients don't know what the doctors are giving them. And you compare the groups with statistical methodology, so something that's measurable. And you look for differences that are greater than random chance. This is what we call a gold standard study, a randomized controlled trial. Doctors believe that, and they believe it because it's it's mathematical and it's mm-hmm. scientific. And so for me, that's really important. Everything I say and do is informed by that. So in terms of what's out there for um, regenerative medicine techniques that are, are better than, you know, the, the current standard of treatment, I would say PRP for lateral epicondylitis or tennis elbow. I think we extrapolate that to golfer's elbow or medial. Mm-hmm. Um and we extrapolate that for gluteal tendinopathy or bursitis. Um, that's probably the best indications that the data would suggest. Um, in regards to comparative, I think I, I try to tell people in terms of, you know, how effective would a surgery be versus the risks versus how effective would a regenerative medicine treatment be mm-hmm. comparative to the risks? Obviously, it's fairly r- low risk, but it's not no risk to have your you know, bone marrow harvested and put it back in your body or even a blood draw, you know, mm-hmm. nothing's no risk. Mm-hmm. And I tell people, every day, driving to your appointment <laughs> is <Right>. a risk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
um, versus a surgery. So if I have someone, for instance, let's take PRP and bone marrow. There's stages of knee osteoarthritis, one through four, and we can measure that on x-ray. Once you get to stage four, you see a massive drop-off in the effectiveness of these techniques. It's, it's simple, quote-unquote, bone-on-bone. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's limited efficacy that you're going to get from a regenerative treatment. You're Sorry. Go no, ahead. thank you for bringing that up because I think um, the the thought of a knee replacement is so scary that people just go and go and go and go and they put it off and they put it off for so long. They may come in to see me for knee pain, but even then, usually they're doing pretty, like we're close to that bone on bone. So I think it's good for the audience to hear like, hey, if we get you in earlier stages, we might have some regenerative medicine techniques that can help you out much short of a total knee replacement. For mild to moderate knee osteoarthritis, it's very moderate effect size for PRP. And the studies that have been done on BMAC are are really, really encouraging. So I think uh, catching it early is critical. Yeah. And then counseling people appropriately. You know, if you're 85 years old and you have significant arthritis, you might want to go ahead and get the knee replacement because it's probably going to be the last surgery you need in your life. Um, you know, that's different. It, it differs based on your activity level. Everything is contextual and individualized. When people talk about personalized medicine, really personalized medicine comes from listening to the patient, <laughs> understanding what they enjoy doing in their life, and uh, applying the science and being a translator for what's out there in the literature. Mm-hmm. So I want to come back just to a few things we've talked about so far. A few things stood out to me. One is... Um, you said that most of the diagnosis comes from the physical exam. And I want to highlight that because obviously imaging is really helpful, uh, but MRIs can be a little misleading sometimes. We know you, you're aware, that, especially in like low back pain, uh, you can show up with a whole bunch of things that show that they should cause problems and they're not actually the pain generator all the time. Uh, knee pain, sometimes nothing shows up as a problem. And then if a doc were to do a scope, they'd say, oh, actually, yeah, there's some... There was some stuff we had to correct. So having a provider that not only looks at imaging when needed, but can differentiate some other problems without the imaging is also important. Classic study. Take 100 people off the street, get an MRI of their back. A third of them are going to have problems so bad that the radiologist is going to look at it and say they need surgery or they need an injection. And they're walking around with no pain, no mm-hmm. symptoms whatsoever. Mm-hmm. MRI, in a good way, it's, it's too detailed. Mm-hmm. And so I think part of my role is getting a really, really good history and getting, doing a very detailed physical examination and weighting those. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if you have terrible pathology in your MRI that's putting you at risk, that may supersede the history and physical. But the, the opposite may be true, too. You know, listening to the patient in front of you may, may, may make you help kind of put into context what's actually on the imaging that and they use scary terminology. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of part of my Degenerative disc disease. You're like, oh, yeah, I'm not 25 anymore. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's what that means. Translation, <laughs> you've had a few trips around the sun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to put a plug for PT in here that those, the study, I believe we're probably talking about the same one that indicated, you know, half the people. Um, so they divided the group into half that had back pain and half that had never had back pain. And the MRI results were the same. There was no increase in disc de- degeneration. There was no increase in osteoarthritis. There was no increase in nerve impingement. And the people who had said they had back pain, the group who had no back pain had all the same things. But there was something that was statistically significant in a difference, and it was atrophy or fatty infiltration of two key muscles. 
the multifidus and the transversus abdominis. So that's where PTs come in. And I've started using ultrasound, um, not as high quality, obviously, as what you're doing, but high enough that we can identify when you're doing a core stabilization maneuver, are you actually using your transversus abdominis, this key muscle we know statistically is contributing to some back pain and dysfunction, or are you actually using your internal oblique and going, yeah, I got this all day long, and your back's not stabilized? Um, sidebar. <laughs> I hijacked you. It's so um, important. It's a yeah. team effort. Yeah. Everything is collaborative. And then uh, what else did I want to go back to real quick? Oh, you're back to your phys- your physical history and exam. One of the things that I was so impressed with, you know, I had a client who's a tough case. He's had a bunch of surgeries, super young. Um, having, and we go back to, yep, he's got imaging, but it's not quite pointing at what's going on. So you did some diagnostic injections. I think you were injecting, I imagine, cortisone, lidocaine, I don't, any analgesic. Yeah, yeah. Um, and said, okay, I think this is most likely your culprit. Let's inject it. If it gets better, we know that's where we focus. If it doesn't, we move on to the next likely culprit. And uh, I love that. I thought that was great. I mean, really what we're getting at is the art of medicine. Mm-hmm. And it's the art of, you know, changing the nodes or the probabilities of every single diagnosis that you can think of. And sometimes you get there with the imaging. Sometimes you get there with history and physical. And uh, injections can be a very useful tool Mm -hmm. to anesthetize a certain area and be very specific about it and see if things improve. So we just, again, we're trying to use every tool at our disposal to A, time to diagnosis I think is highly underrated as a metric for success with patients. But I think time to diagnosis is number one. Um, And then appropriate evidence-based treatment as the follow-up. It's frustrating as a patient in pain to say, this isn't working. How, you know, you want to go in, like you said, time to diagnosis is an important like measurement as a patient. I want that in five minutes. Right. (laughs) I want that yesterday. (laughs) Yeah. Could you have diagnosed me before this happened? Yes. So, but sometimes that's not possible because the body is tricky. The nervous system is tricky. And so you just want the best team that will listen to you and get you there as fast as possible with as few complications. And we'll have to schedule another three hours for this talk. But there's a lot of disincentivization for time to diagnosis. Oh, yeah. That's a, <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole different thing. We're, we're going to pretend that doesn't exist. So um, can we talk about cortisone injections a bit? Of course. When do you use them? When do you find them to be most helpful? It really boils down to the biomechanics or the the physical forces that are acting on a specific structure. So uh, let's use an example, a little easier. Let's say you have uh, irritation around the rotator cuff. What factors and conditions are leading to that being a problem? Are you on your computer all day? Do you focus on scapular strengthening and stabilization? Do you have anatomy that is irritating the rotator cuff? If it's something that I think we can fix biomechanically, I'm much more inclined to suggest an anti-inflammatory like a steroid because we can hopefully relieve the pain symptoms and then get you into a capable physical therapist uh, or even a chiropractor or people with other skills and teach you how what you're doing with your body is creating problems. So the causes and conditions that go into the pathology are often overlooked. And a lot of physicians, and this is not an indictment, I'm sure I've done it too, you know, they'll do an injection and say, all right, you're on your way. But if you just go one layer deeper Mm -hmm. (laughs) and think about 
the causes and conditions that led to it, it, it's amazing what you'll find. And my goal is not to see people every three to six months for the rest of my life. I'd like to see you on Snowmass or at mm. the grocery store. My goal is to heal the pathology and help your body adjust so it stops happening. And then you don't need people like me. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's put ourselves out of business, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> then you can see us on Snowmass. Are there times when you somebody might think that they need a steroid injection or a cortisone injection, but you actually would advise against it? Yeah. I'll give you the hard case and the soft case. The hard case is, uh, you know, it increases the risk of tendon problems. Uh, and I'll use this individual as an example. She's a close friend, fantastic person, uh, was a tango dancer, uh, Argentine tango dancer, and was having horrendous, we'll call it greater trochanteric bursitis. The preferred term is greater trochanteric pain syndrome. But So that's the outside of the upper leg or the hip. Some Thank you, Tannis. You're welcome. <laughs> She's, I need you in clinic, too. <laughs> There's a bump on the bone that your tendon runs over and certain tendons attach to, and that can be a, a sign of friction and pressure and all kinds of mechanical forces. So looping back into our previous conversation, you know, they did a good head-to-head stu head study on lateral epicondylitis, but I, I think it extrapolates very well to greater trochanteric bursitis and so on and so forth. So folks who got steroid versus, versus folks who got PRP. If you looked at the steroid group, they did really, really well out of the gate. Six weeks, maybe three months, their pain symptoms were improved. But if you tracked it out to six months, a year, and beyond, their pain symptoms were worse. And in the tennis elbow study, they actually had a higher risk of tendon rupture, which is a surgical fix. Um, when you looked at the PRP group, it was almost like this uh, you know, steady, slow improvement. And they tracked these people six, 12 months. They were markedly better than the group had gotten steroid. And, you know, you track it out to two years, and a lot of the patients were really, really happy. Uh, they didn't need surgery. They were much better than their peers who had gotten the steroid. Uh, it, it depends. I mean, again, it's very conditional. But I think with appropriate rehabilitation, appropriate administration of whether it's regenerative or traditional techniques – um, you know, you really shoot for a good outcome. So if PRP is coming from our own blood and you're just doing some voodoo in the lab and putting it back in, is there a way that, that research has shown that we can kind of hack our own system to up train or up regulate all those good things to help heal ourselves pre injection, you know, like at a smaller baseline. So zooming out, I think there's a bigger theme here. You know, PRP, I kind of tell people it's like a hyper-concentrated growth factor delivery. You know, if you rehabilitated your muscles, <laughs> let's take, for instance, tennis elbow seems to be a good example. But if you stop stressing the tendon, because the tendon has poor blood supply, you're spending money faster than you can make it. You know, it takes about 6 to 12 weeks for a tendon to heal versus if you go to the gym and lift your biceps 24 to 72 hours, that muscle is going to heal. So people repetitively stress the tendon. Tennis is a great example. You hit a ball 10,000 times every single day, your tendon hurts, and you're surprised, and, and that's okay. But we're taking your blood, spinning it down, putting these hyper-concentrated growth factors. I think if people underwent a rehabilitation program where they're not stressing the tendon, but they're activating the muscles, increasing blood supply, that would effectively replicate. And that's what we see in practice. There's good evidence for dry needling. What does dry needling do? it increases blood flow to the area. What does blood flow restriction therapy do? 
it increases blood flow to the area. I mean, I think we're all kind of approaching the summit from different angles, you know, and it's easy for me because I have a gondola, which is, you know, the Stedman Philippon Research Institute, and <laughs> I have all these resources at my disposal, but I kind of look at what you're doing, and I'm really inspired by it, and I'd love to see, you know, where we could potentially collaborate to facilitate these delivery systems. The goal is the same. The summit is the same. Patient, function, recovery, quality of life, you know, how we get there is just different. Mm-hmm. Same, same, but different. Same, same, but yeah. different. <laughs> which leads me to, I actually had one more thought I wanted to come back to, uh, which is a little facetious and probably less so now that I announced that it is. But <laughs> so type five research, expert opinion. Does that get bumped up to type one if it's on social media and they have a ton of listeners? It depends followers? on how many likes you get. Yeah. Okay. That's what I thought. Yeah. A hundred hearts. You definitely get a You know, longer need, <laughs> double-blinded, controlled stuff, right? Just expert opinion. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Um, like and subscribe. Thank you. <laughs> What's your channel? I, I'm off social media. I'm one of those cool kids, completely off social media. <laughs> That's cool. Now we're on radio. I don't know if it's uncool or cool anymore, but I guess I'm back on, on here. Thanks to you. Yeah. So. Yeah. Thanks for coming. <laughs> um, what are some of the new exciting things coming around? We've got some interesting things happening here in the Valley. Um, so we have funding for a large rotator cuff study, um, and we're utilizing platelet-rich plasma or PRP to see if we can enhance uh, outcomes for rotator cuff surgery. Um my line of interest is, of course, in regenerative medicine. We're doing a lot of that. Um, I will we'll have to invite another guest back to speak at this more in depth. The most exciting thing happening in the field of orthopedics and almost beyond is senescence. Um, as we get older, our cells age. Some of them fade into the background and they become zombie cells. They're not really doing what they were designed to do. They're actually releasing inflammation. Big studies have shown correlation with arthritis, cognitive decline in dementia, heart disease. Um, so it's almost this singular mechanism that potentially explains what happens to us when we age. But we look at age as this inevitable thing, and there's a lot of researchers not making that assumption, saying, what can we do to reverse it? So at Spry, or the Research Institute, we're looking at supplements, we're looking at medications to reduce senescent cells, and enhance healing and prevent some of those things. So that seems to me to be the most exciting thread. And then I'm personally interested and have a background in artificial intelligence and machine learning. So I'd like to see what we can do with the data uh, and our computational power. Yeah, it does sound like we have a few more conversations to be had. (laughs) See you next week. (laughs) That's quite a cliffhanger. (laughs) Thank you so much. This was incredible. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's do it again. And uh, I look forward to seeing you on Snowmass. Sounds good. Sweet.